are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features author and former Marine, Phil Clay, discussing his book, Redeployment. Clay is joined by writer and editor Lee Carpenter for the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series, a regular event at the Institute presenting conversations with notable authors. Winner of the 2014 National Book Award, Redeployment takes readers to the front lines of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This collection of short stories asks us to understand what happened there and what happened to the soldiers who returned. Interwoven are themes of brutality and faith, guilt and fear, helplessness and survival. The characters in these stories struggle to make meaning out of the chaos. After graduating from Dartmouth, Clay enlisted in the Marines and served as a public affairs officer in Iraq's Al-Anbar province during the 2007 troop surge. After being discharged, he went to Hunter College and received an MFA. Clay's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. Lee Carpenter's debut novel, 11 Days, tells the story of America's special operations forces through the eyes of an officer who goes missing during a mission the same night as the Bin Laden raid, and also through the eyes of his mother, who waits for news. Please note, Clay reads from his book, which includes some graphic scenes that depict the brutality of war and may not be suitable for everyone. Here's Lee Carpenter and Phil Clay. So I asked Phil to start out by doing a brief reading from the book. Um, And maybe you can just set us up with what story this is in the book. Sure. So the the book is a collection of 12 stories all told by different different narrators and different jobs. you know, as an infantryman, an artilleryman, an adjutant, um, foreign service officer. This story is called Bodies, and it's told by uh, mortuary affairs specialists, uh, the Marines who are responsible for um, preparing the bodies of the dead to be sent home. For a long time, I was angry. I didn't want to talk about Iraq, so I wouldn't tell anybody I'd been. And if people knew, if they pressed, I'd tell them lies. There was this Haji corpse, I'd say, lying in the sun. It'd been there for days. It was swollen with gases. The eyes were sockets. And we had to clean it off the streets. Then I'd look at my audience and size them up and see if they wanted me to keep going. You'd be surprised how many do. That's what I did, I'd say. I collected remains. US forces mostly, but sometimes insurgents. There are two ways to tell the story. Funny or sad? Guys like it funny with lots of gore and a grin on your face when you get to the end. Girls like it sad with a thousand yard stare out to the distance as you gaze on the horrors of war they can't quite see. Either way, it's the same story. This lieutenant colonel who's visiting the government center rolls up, sees two marines maneuvering around a body bag, and decides he'll go show what a regular guy he is and help. As I tell the story, Lieutenant Colonel's a large, arrogant bear of a man with fresh-pressed camis and a short, tight mustache. He's got huge hands, I'd say. And he comes up to us and he says, Here, Marine, let me help you with that. And without waiting for us to respond or warn him off, he reaches down and grabs the body bag. Then I describe how he launches up as though he's doing a clean and jerk. He was strong. I'll give him that, I'd say. But the bag rips on the edge of the truck's back gate, 
and the skin of the haji tears with it, a big jagged tear through the stomach. Rotting blood and fluid and organs slide out like groceries through the bottom of a wet paper bag. Human soup hits him right in the face, running down his mustache. If I'm telling the story sad, I can stop there. If I'm telling it funny, though, there's one more crucial bit, which Corporal G had done when he told the story to me for the first time, back in 2004, before either of us had collected remains or knew what we were talking about. I don't know where G heard the story. The colonel screamed like a bitch, G had said. And then he made a weird, high-pitched keening noise, deep in his throat, like a wheezing dog. <laughs> this was to show us precisely how bitches scream when covered in rotting human fluids. If you get the noise right, you get a laugh. What I liked about the story was that even if it had happened, more or less, it was still total bullshit. After our deployment, there wasn't anybody, not even Corporal G, who talked about the remains that way. Some of the mortuary affairs Marines thought the spirits of the dead hung about the bodies. It creeped them out. You could feel it, they'd say, especially when you look at the faces. But it got to be more than that. Midway through deployment, guys started swearing they could feel spirits everywhere, not just around the bodies, and not just Marine dead. Sunni dead, Shia dead, Kurd dead, Christian dead, all the dead of all Iraq, even all the dead of all Iraqi history, the Akkadian Empire and the Mongols and the American invasion. I never felt any ghosts. Leave a body in the sun, the outer layer of skin detaches from the lower, and you feel it slide around in your hands. Leave a body in water, everything swells, and the skin feels waxy and thick, but it's recognizably human. That's all. Except for me and Corporal G, though. Everybody in Mortuary Affairs talked about ghosts. We never said any different. One of the things that I really like about that portion of the book is that it gets at this idea that when you uh, go through a challenging experience, war being a very challenging experience, you develop uh, patterns and habits and protocols of how to talk about what you've been through. Maybe you feel pressure to talk about it in one way or another way. So you went through some of these experiences, Phil, and you came back and decided to write about it. And I would argue that there are also patterns and habits and protocols of trying to write about this subject. And maybe we could start out with you talking a little bit about, because you're such a, a literary guy, um, whether you felt pressure by those traditions and how you approached starting to write on this subject, which is very intimidating to write on, even for someone with your, your level of experience. Well, I think... Um, in a, there are all these kind of cultural notions about war that are so much in the culture that you, when I started writing about it, you don't, you don't really notice it until you see that you've just been regurgitating um, the ideas that we've heard before. Um, and I think one of the things that was very important for me writing the book was, was reading a lot, talking to other veterans, interviewing other veterans, doing anything to complicate the notions uh, of war that I had. because. 
you know, you don't just go over, have this intense kind of experience and then come back. You go over with, with all the stories about war that are rattling around in your head, and not just the stories about courage and heroism, but also the stories about how, you know, you go over and come back sadder and wiser and, and having looked into the heart of darkness and, you know, it makes you a man and, and war, you know, uh, war is hell, war is fun, war is all these other things. And then you experience whatever you experience, you try and find stories to actually, you know, reconcile that with the, the sense that you have of your own life. And then you come back to all the stories that people are telling about you or about the experience and what it must mean. Um, you know, that, that narrator, he doesn't have the war stories that, that anybody would expect. He was a mortuary affairs specialist. Um, but he does know different ways to get a reaction. Um, and he uses that as a kind of mechanism for keeping people at a distance. And did you feel like writing from a number of different points of view freed you from having to tell one definitive story, one definitive experience? Was that part of the draw to the stories? <laughs> That was, it was definitely, you know, um, important to me because, I mean, for one thing, I was a public affairs officer, so I, I interacted with a lot of different types of people while I was overseas, and there was clearly no one unifying experience, even for people doing the same job in the same place. Um, you know, I, I have two friends named Matt. They're both scouts in the cavalry. They both served in the exact same place. They worked with the same translator. Um, an Iraqi guy who loved American rap music and was nicknamed Suge Knight. And, um, but one of them was in Iraq in 2006, and one of them was in Iraq in 2008, and they are totally different wars. Um, and so if that's true for them, you know, how, how true is it for a chaplain or a, you know, um, an adjutant or an infantryman in different sections of the country? The other thing is there's this sort of well, there's, you know, there's a tradition in war literature, the veteran coming and, and experiencing the truth of war and then coming back and testifying to it, right? And, and there's, you know, in the First World War, Wilfred Owen addressing Dulce de Cormas to Jesse Pope and, and um, you know, Hemingway talking about, you know, combat is the thing that only those who've been through it can, can um, know about. Or, and I wanted not to have one you know, veteran coming back and testifying to the truth of the Iraq war mm -hmm. narrative. I wanted 12 and 12 that didn't match up with each other. I want to get back to that number 12. Mm -hmm. But first I wanted to say, um, you know, one of my favorite paragraphs in the book that's gotten a lot of attention is this one um, from a story called Psychological Operations. It's amazing how well the veteran mystique plays, even at a school like Amherst, where I'd have thought the kids would be smart enough to know better. There's an old joke, how many Vietnam vets does it take to screw in a light bulb? You wouldn't know, you weren't there. And that's really the game. Everyone assumed I'd had some soul-scarring encounter with the real, the harsh, unvarnished, violent world as it actually is, outside the bubble of America and academia, a sojourn to the heart of darkness that either destroys you or leaves you sadder and wiser. It's bullshit, of course. Um, is it bullshit? <laughs> I think the voice of the narrator in this story has that story. But one of the things that's so artful about this collection is that 
um, Phil is able to, by employing a number of different voices and points of view, have a number of different people giving their different views on what a war means, what killing means. Um, I mean, I'd love to know your, your thought in that, with that voice, if that's you. He's learned something, um, but he's not really sure what it is yet, right? He's still inside the experience. He's still trying to, to puzzle it out. Um, and, you know, the, the, I mean, I've talked about this before, the notion of, of war experience is incommunicable and, and sort of forever separating you from the rest of humanity. It's not something that I think is true or helpful. Um, you know, I talked to, <clears throat> I talked to one uh, veteran who'd been through just a lot of very intense experiences, and he said, you know, people are always telling, well, I can never imagine what you've been through. And he said, it makes me angry when I hear that because, you know, what if it's important to me that you try to imagine it? Um, and I think that... I think That's kind of the empathy versus sympathy mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, very much so. Uh, there's um, the uh, theologian John Edwards talks about pity as an emotion, and he doesn't... He's a... Uh, essay um, on the nature of true virtue, and he doesn't consider pity to be an expression of true virtue. He doesn't think it's it's a bad thing necessarily, but he says, you know, pity addresses the suffering, not the individual in in, in the whole. And he and he says something, um, you know, we might pity the you know we might pity those who are suffering when yet we would be grieved to see them prosper, right? That it's a much more difficult thing to to consider that you know somebody in their totality. Um, <coughs> And so taking that empathetic step to imagine the experience, which is not the same as abandoning a kind of crit critical stance, right? Not just accepting everything that the veteran might want to believe about what they've been through, because veterans are like everybody else. We lie to ourselves. Um, and you know, it's difficult to puzzle things out on your own. This is why, I mean, this is one of the many reasons why in the Catholic Church, like, you confess to a priest. You just don't, you don't just do it to God. So it makes a big difference, that interaction with another human being. So in your uh, speech, when you won the National Book Award, you said, one of the things you the, said... The priest uh, up front is nodding. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> One of the things you said was war is too strange to be processed alone. Um, and do you feel like in writing this book you've entered into a conversation that's part of trying to process this with other writers or other veterans? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, like, you set out to write the book for one reason, but now that it's out there and it has had this incredible success, do you feel more or less pressure um, about that conversation and that processing? Well, the nice thing about it is that it's not really, you know, it's not just up to me <laughs> that um, I'm, you know, watching all the new books that are coming in that help you, that, that are just coming from different angles that I never wrote about. Elliot Ackerman just came out with uh, Green on Blue, which is from the perspective of an Afghan boy turned, um, you know, fighter. Uh, there's some, you know, there's a war, the encyclopedia is about to come out, Chris 
Robinson and Gavin Covite, which was a, a book co-written by a civilian and a veteran. Um, and I don't think it's just about veterans processing the experience, but civilians as well, right? That has to be a part of the conversation. This is not, you know, these are not wars that, that, that only happened for veterans. Mm -hmm. They're wars that we all had a role in, mm -hmm. just for some of us, it was much easier to ignore that role. Um, and, you know, I think there's an engaged civilian voice is just as important as the engaged um, veteran voice. It's, it's, it's essential, actually. And when I was writing this book, um, I, w I had veteran readers who would call me out on my BS, um, but I also had civilian readers who would call me out on my BS, and it was often different types of BS. Uh, and they were both What's really an example <laughs> of veteran BS? Veteran BS. Oh, God. I mean, well, you know, one of the things that happens in the book, so there's a story of war stories, and um, it's just a conversation between this civilian playwright who wants to write about uh, who wants to write about the war and is interviewing this, you know, very seriously uh, burned veteran, and it's told by the by uh, the burned veteran's friend, and the woman keeps sort of projecting things onto the uh, the injured veteran. She's just kind of like, so you know, you have PTSD, and he's like, no, I don't have PTSD, like, and you know, that's PTSD or whatever. She she's has her own projections. But at the same time, he's projecting onto the civilian um, all these negative things that he would like to believe about her because he'd like to dismiss her perspective. Um, and those are both, you know, those are both bad. Those are both, you know, stumbling blocks to conversation. And the thing about the, the um, his friend is that he's willing to engage in that despite the stumbling blocks, despite the things that, that, that send the narrator into a rage and a kind of defensive rage, he's willing to keep pushing and keep trying to make himself understood and engage with that other, you know, other human being with an experience very unlike his own, but perhaps who might have something useful to say. It's in that story that there's the exchange where one character says, I bet more Marines have joined the Corps because of Full Metal Jacket than because of any uh, effing recruiting commercial. I don't know if I can say that word here. So, um, then, then because of any recruiting commercial, and the other character says, and that's an anti-war film, meaning Full Metal Jacket. And then the other character says, nothing's an anti-war film. There's no such thing. Do you, do you agree with that? you want to extrapolate from that about anti-war novels um, <laughs> a little bit? Because we've talked, I, you know, there's, there's so much philosophy and rule out there about, you know, how you have to write about war and what a war book is and what an anti-war book is. Um, and I, I wrote a book that was called both of those things. Um, but when I, when I read this line in this story, it made me think, well, think know, about if you had any conscious intent about saying something. Or the other. I don't, if you're going to write about war, I mean, I don't think you should, <laughs> I think the danger is writing something that makes people feel smugly complacent, mm -hmm. whether that's anti-war or pro-war, whatever. Um, you know, discussion of the past decade plus should make us all deeply uncomfortable. Um, it, should, it should provoke a response in us when we think about what has happened. Um, the, yeah, I, so our mutual friend, Matt Gallagher, wrote a memoir called Kaboom, 
was telling me that he, <clears throat> he read a passage when he was on book tour. He read the same passage two nights in a row. I think the first night he was called a, a, a hippie, and the second night he was called a warmonger. I was like, all right. <laughs> um, you know, I think that in a strange way, I mean, I'm a, there, there are war films that, that do a lot of really interesting things. I think there's always kind of the, the, the spectacle and the appeal of war is just very deep. Um, in a strange way, I think that it's much easier to make an anti-war book of photography, um, you know, where you sit with the image and, and oftentimes think a lot more about the human subject. But any work of art that, that produces a clear didactic message is probably not going to be very good because reality is not didactic. So um, in order to make a utterly <clears throat> appropriate, clearly messaged work of literature that appeals to the right political sympathies, whatever they are, will probably be a failing in some degree. Uh, and won't capture the messiness of how humans actually behave. Do you think people have tried to, uh, by which I mean critics, have tried to extrapolate politics from these stories? <laughs> um, does that make you uncomfortable? Because I find, um, let me qualify that question a little bit. If you see writers writing on this subject, and go out to talk about this subject, you often will see something very different than seeing a Jonathan Franzen or Zadie Smith go out and talk about their books, which is to say, you're often seeing the conversation immediately taken away from books and literature and framed as, you know, because you're a veteran, we're gonna place you in a certain position and all we wanna hear about is um, your view on the war or your right. view on the Bush administration or um, how do you place this book in a history of war novels. Um, Instead of, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but instead of um, going in for a more maybe maybe literary conversation, I don't know. So you, so you almost have to arm yourself if you're writing on this subject, and certainly if you're a, as a veteran, to know that you're going to be framed as a mouthpiece for these wars. I mean, that, that certainly happens. Um, I think that it's not, it's not even entirely unfair because... You know, I didn't, I didn't write the book as, as solely an, an art, you know, a, a work of art to, that would kind of sort of exist in the ether away from the world of, like, politics and human affairs. Like, I wrote it because I, I came back from Iraq and I, and I thought, what, what the hell was that? And why is there not a conversation about the things that I think are really important? I'm not even sure what they are yet, but I need to write the book in order to even figure that out. And so, you know, I don't know whether the, the, the book is political or not. I think that it's, it's clearly related to the political decisions that we make. And, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about politics, it's, you know, do I read this book and get a good sense that Donald Rumsfeld was an asshole? Well, you know, Get this guy on Rumsfeld. <laughs> if you can later, it's, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. No, Phil is too humble to say this, but the President of the United States went on CNN and talked about this book and, and, and the impact that the book had had on him. Um, and 
you know, we, we had a little bit of an exchange about it after that happened. I think for any writer, that would be a, an, an incredible moment. But given the subject matter of the book, um, you know, I was thinking to myself, would that make me feel like I could hang up my hat and, and my career? Or would it make me want to crawl under the covers and be afraid who's going to come into the room and ask me for my views? Um, it's, a, it's a tricky place to be in. I, well, you know, I think that thinking about what the, the end result I'm not going to get the end result, but what, you know, what our policies look like by the people who are enacting them on the ground. Like what that actually means is um, it's, it's inherently political, but not in not necessarily in in a, in a you know. I, you know, I didn't write the book just because I wanted to have a sort of policy discussion of of the Iraq War. I mean, there's a little bit of discussion of the policy in, you know, money as a weapon system, for example. But it's all about the, the situations that that policy has created and how the characters have to navigate it, not... Can you describe just in two minutes what is the story of money as a weapon system? So it's a foreign service officer who's running a provincial reconstruction, embedded provincial reconstruction team. Uh, and he comes in and he has these ideas that he's going to get this water treatment plant up and running, which proves to be... Difficult because the water treatment plant, despite us having sunk millions of dollars into it, is far, far away from being online. Even if it was online, the pipes that were built were at like there's two, the water pressure is too intense, so it would explode all the plumbing in the region. Um, the even if it, even if they fixed that, the ministry wouldn't, you know, the pipes go across the highway to the Sunni section, so they wouldn't. You know, the ministry would be would not be interested in in providing services to Sunnis, and there's all kinds of kind of complications that that arise as he's trying to navigate um, through this. And at the same time, a the mattress king of northern Kansas, um, who is an important constituent of a congressman, really wants him to teach Iraqis how to play baseball. And so he needs to at least give the semblance that he's doing something on that front. And he kind of gets taken in by this major who's running a civil affairs unit uh, who seems like the stupidest person he's ever met in his life, but actually proves somewhat pretty adept at navigating the insanity of the bureaucracy that they're in by just accepting it wholeheartedly. Um, Down to the blue and gray uniforms and a nod to the Civil War. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah that story um, is incredibly funny, laugh out loud funny. And again, one thing you can do with a, with a story collection that you can't necessarily do with a novel is really change the tone of the feeling of each story so you can have a very dark comic story followed up by a very um, uh, heartbreaking story. Um, I wanted to read, and I, I definitely want to get to questions in time, but I wanted to read another paragraph. This is one of the last paragraphs from a story called Unless It's a Sucking Chest Wound. Um, this can lead us into maybe talking a little bit about PTSD, sure. or as we were saying earlier, maybe it will only in the future be referred to as PTS. Um, so Phil writes, um, Agamben, Agamben? 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 I don't know, I don't know. I've only, I've only read the name. Okay. 
Agamben speaks of the difference between men and animals being that animals are enthralled to stimuli. Think a deer in the headlights. He describes experiments where scientists give a worker bee a source of nectar. As the bee imbibes, they cut away its abdomen so that instead of filling the bee up, the nectar falls out through the wound in a trickle that pours as fast as the bee drinks. You'd think the bee might change its behavior in response, but it doesn't. It keeps happily sucking away at the nectar and will continue indefinitely, enthralled by one stimulus, the presence of nectar, until released by another, the sensation of satiety. But that second stimulus never comes. The wound keeps the bee drinking until it finally starves. That's one of the very powerful images in the book. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? And What's, what's going on with that bee, and what can we learn from that bee? <laughs> the the narrator is, is, he was an adjutant. Um, he's another one of the characters whose war stories don't quite match up with what your war stories are supposed to be, because he, he, went, he went to Iraq and he did paperwork. Um, and he did paperwork for a unit that was doing heroic things. And he... <sighs> It, and he's in law school, and he's trying to figure out what to do with his life. Um, and in some ways, he's a broken idealist, right? He he had these ambitions to be something greater, and he didn't really get what he wanted. And the big cause that he threw himself into was the Iraq War. Um, and he's not really sure how to feel about it, and he's certainly not doesn't know how to feel about the Marine, uh, one Marine in particular that he knows who volunteered to go to Afghanistan um, because it was a hard fight, because he knew that people would have a difficult time, because he'd seen one of, he, because one of his, his friends or mentors or his NCO had died saving his life, and he feels guilty about that. Um, but he also knows how how you have to recover and go out the next day despite wanting to grieve. And he thinks that he could, you know, help people out in Afghanistan. He goes and he dies fairly quickly. And the, you know, adjutant went out and went to live in New York and is living this great life and, and doesn't know how to reconcile those, those sides of, of who he is. And the fact that he doesn't want to go to war again. Um, and, you know, his friends are advising him in different ways. And one of the guys tells him, like, you know, you know, you don't want to be uh, the guy, you know, bailing water out of a sinking, sinking boat. And he's like, yeah, I'm an Iraq vet. I've already been there. Um, and so, but the, 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 all the ideals that he believed in, everything that, that mattered, like it's still very real to him, even though he can't bring himself to admit it. Um, so what am I doing with the bee? So is the stimuli, but, um, and then we, we can move on, because I do want to ask about why there are 12 stories in this collection. Um, is the stimuli the experience of combat, or is the stimuli the experience of meaning? It's, it's meaning. It's meaning, I think, that he's hungry for, and that he hasn't been able to find. Mm -hmm. So why are there 12 stories in this collection? <laughs> this was not a setup. He didn't tell me to ask this. I just, it's... I don't, I, don't, I mean... I don't. I don't know. Um, Are there anything? Anything about that number that's meaningful? Yeah. 
sir? <laughs> I have not heard you ask this question, so if you've answered it, I do not know the answer, and I would like to know because I think that people who write short story collections think very hard about these kinds of choices, and I think that this book is going to be remembered for a long time, and people will write about the fact that there were 12 stories, so I just wanted to take a minute on that. It felt right. It felt right. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I didn't go over planning to write about it. I mean, I, I always wrote, you know, I wrote in high school. So if you'd asked me, I probably would have said, yeah, I'll probably end up writing about more. Um, but, um, you know, I wasn't, like if, if you told me in high school that I was going to join the military, I would not have believed you. It, it wasn't, um, you know, I was never like a big military buff. I hadn't, I hadn't even read that much war literature until I, I uh, went to college and had a, a teacher named Tom Slay, a fantastic poet, uh, who's actually written really interesting things about uh, mm -hmm. Iraq in his latest book of poetry, Station Z. And he you know, said, like, all right, you're going overseas, so you need to read um, War and Peace and Isaac Babel's Red Cavalry and Celine's Journey to the End of the Night and David Jones and Princess. And Ooh, what, what was on the list? Uh, so we, I would, uh, War and Peace and uh, Red Cavalry, Journey to the End of the Night, Celine, David Jones and Princess. Um, Hemingway short stories. I, mean, I, I read like all of Hemingway short stories over one weekend, and I was writing these like Hemingway-esque emails to people. You know, <laughs> just, just spent the whole. Um, why I joined, how I ended up in Iraq was we were at war, so I I signed up to be a part of that. That was the thing that our country was doing. Um, if I'd been born 10 years earlier, I probably would have done something else. Um, you know, my family's always had a, a huge respect for public service. My dad was in the Peace Corps, which is a little different from the Marine Corps. Um, <laughs> my mother's worked in international development for years and currently works for Children's Defense Fund, and her father was a career diplomat. Um, and so, you know, my mother grew up all over the world. I always admired my grandfather and my grandmother very much for that. And the huge project that our country was engaged in was Iraq. So if I wanted to hopefully be a part of that for the better, the military seemed like the, the best thing to do. And, you know, there are all the other reasons that a 20-year-old joins the military. Like, it's exciting. It's, you know, there's a great appeal to the Marine Corps ethos and the way that they present themselves. I was a boxer heavyweight boxer and a rugby player when I was in um, college, so the mm. physical aspect didn't, you know, appealed to me in a certain sense. But, I mean, a lot of reasons. Yes. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. My son is an infantry officer currently. He's about to leave the Marine Corps. He, due to an injury during IOC, he, he just missed the opportunity to serve in combat, so far as he has told us. Uh, and what do you tell young people when they approach you or their parents approach you and say, what should I say to my son about joining, or my daughter, about joining the Marine Corps? How do you describe it now? I'm, I'm proud to have been a Marine. I think um, it's, I mean, it's a serious decision. It's a serious decision generally made at a young age. Um, so, 
there are, I mean, there's a lot of different pieces of it. But one of the things is when you sign, you're signing your life away for, for four years, at least. Um, and the country as a whole gets to do what they would like with it, right? You don't sign up for a particular president or a particular policy. Um, uh, you know, I served during uh, George Bush and President Obama. Um, different leaders um, in some ways. And so one of the thoughts is, is, you know, what that aspect of service means to you and then <laughs> how your life might be used, right? I mean, it's in, in some ways it's an act of faith in the country to use your life well. And, and the country's not always done that with its service members. And that's, that's a serious thing to think about. We, des we need to have good and thoughtful and intelligent, humane people in the military, and we do. Um, and we need to have people who are not just blindly obedient to the particular policy of the moment, and we do. Um, and that's why it's about service. I have a friend who protested the Iraq War and then joined the army, right? Um, and then got sent to Afghanistan, right? Because you don't choose. So, but thinking about exactly what that, what, what the kind of contract you're making with the American people is, and understanding that after you go over and you do whatever you're asked to, your service is probably going to be conflated with whatever particular mission you did. Um, you know, there's a unit that um, they're either going to go to Africa to fight Ebola to help fight Ebola and handle logistical stuff there, or they were going to go to Guantanamo Bay. I imagine that depending on which deployment they do, they get a different response when they tell people what they did during their time in service. Now, if somebody says, you fought Ebola, that's great, you're a hero, that's scary, um, but that's a wonderful humanitarian thing, part of what we're doing is we're congratulating ourselves for being a part of a nation that does that. If you get the opposite response to Guantanamo, well, part of what that person is doing is perhaps unknowingly castigating themselves for being a part of a nation that has done that. And yet, it's the same service member who could go to either place. Um, yeah, we have a, a, a friend called Michael Petrie who just wrote a book called Fives and Twenty Fives. He's a Marine. And he, he, he says um, that when people ask him, um, so did you kill anybody? Which is a question nobody likes to get. But he's honed, he's honed his response, which is uh, when people ask him, uh, so did you kill anybody? He says, well, if I did, you paid me to do it. Um, and the other thing about the military is you meet a lot of incredible, insane, also sometimes terrible people. But you, for the most part, like, you meet a wide you know, swath of people. You interact with a lot of people outside your particular world. Um, and I found it to be enlarging in that sense. Um, there are a lot of things about the training that, that are great. Uh, you can also go to war and get killed maimed, seriously psychologically damaged. So it's a complicated decision. Would our situation be different? Would your analysis be different? Would we be better off if we uh, reinstituted the draft? <sighs> um, I mean, 
<laughs> a lot of things would be different if we if we reinstituted the draft, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't think we I don't think we want to do that. And it seems like what we'd like to do is is the other way around, not just just use our all volunteer military over and again, but you know, drone program, kill capture mission, like even a smaller percentage of the military, right? Boots on the ground is now a, a fairly toxic word in a lot of circles. So um, I think, you know, we like to use military force, but we also want it to be cheap. And there are some serious problems with that. We have the draft. And part of the benefit of it being cheap is that you don't attract a lot of scrutiny. And then, and which is why I think generally we need a lot more public engagement and, and political debate about um, how we're using our military and, and whether we have clear strategic ends. I was uh, struck by your adjutant and the way he felt when he was writing that citation. Was that you writing this book? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I mean, you know, you, you steal things from your own life. I, I, I'm not the adjutant. Um, I don't. The weight of telling that story for all those people, or telling these stories. But I, I'm very certainly writing the book. I mean, I wrote with a kind of terror because I had like this sense of like, you know, I don't have a right to tell these stories. I don't know even what the right to tell a story even means, really. Um, I don't know if I even have the right to tell my own story because everybody's stories is the stories of all the people around them and the community they're a part of. Um, so the only thing that I could do was try and be as, as, as emotionally honest, as, as rigorous as I could. And I had this kind of vision of all the veterans like waiting in a line to kick my ass if I screwed it up. So yeah, I mean, some, some of those, some of that, that tension and, and yeah, I mean, in pieces, every character is me and none of them are, I guess is, is one way of putting it. I'm really looking forward to reading your book, and um, I just put a couple cards on the table. I was a, I'm a Iraqi war vet, a generation ahead of you, and in the Anbar province as well, I had troops in, in Fallujah and Ramadi. Sorry, I'm Iraqi war vet in Anbar province. Um, really appreciate the sensitivity with which you are talking about how this book came to be. Thank you. And uh, about the images of uh, perhaps photography over words, in terms of bringing this to the to the fore, so um, I'm wondering if you did see it, if you had uh, to be a reviewer, if you had anything you would share about uh, Catherine Bigelow's production of The Hurt Locker. Um. Yeah. It's sort of hard to 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 give you a like a film review. I. You know, I saw the movie not long after somebody that I'd known was killed in IED, so it had, a, a, I think, a different kind of emotional reaction to it than, than I would um, had I not seen it at that time. Um, you know, it's, there are things that are, that are action movie stuff. Um, there are pieces that, that, that felt very true, uh, like the moment when he... You know, there's a scene where he, the character comes back and he's in a supermarket and just at an utter loss. Uh, that felt, I mean, 
I think this is always something coming back from war to the society that sent you over and then wondering what the hell this place even is and, and what, you know, what, what the values of that community are, what they look like when, once you've been over. There's, there's, you know, we were talking about meaning earlier. You know, one of the things is you know, the kind of adrenaline junkie aspect of the military is very much emphasized in that. There's a, there's a bit in, in um, Sebastian Younger's book, uh, War, where he talks about the, uh, the unit that he's with. And he says that you know, the time that they spent there in, in combat all the time, it's not when they felt the most alive, because that you can get skydiving. It's when they felt the most utilized. I think that's, you know, that's a piece of it, right? Being in a place where the stakes feel incredibly high, where um, you know, it's no longer, these questions are no longer an abstraction, right? And it's not just the, um, it's not just sort of physical things like, you know, for an infantryman on a patrol in, in, in Afghanistan, like, tying your shoelaces correctly um, can have a life or death consequences, not just for you, but for other people, but also the kind of moral stakes, right? There's, there's a, a veteran of Vietnam who talks about uh, units doing atrocities and, and why he didn't do that. Uh, and he said, you know, there's some people who got into this mode where they could die any moment, so it didn't matter what they did. But the longer that I was there, the more that I felt it was the opposite, that because we could die at any moment, it mattered more what we did in that moment. And so I think that, um, you know, the, the intensity of, of, of war experience can, can cut both ways. But, yeah, it, there's you know, things. And the other thing in the Hurt Locker was the, the driving through a place and feeling very, very removed from the culture and the place that you're in, which I think was, was very good. If we could follow up on Ms. Carpenter's interesting aside about you and Donald Rumsfeld. Um, could, could we just talk a little bit about Donald Rumsfeld? We have to wrap this up in half an hour. Or <laughs> I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. I, I, mean, look, I mean, look, there's, there's plenty of people to be angry at. Um, He's just a particularly noxious one. Um, I, there's a way in which it's not just... And to go back to, to the politics of, of, of the war, I think when people talk about something being political or political discussion of the war, they think it's like a, 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 an either or, war good, war bad, right? Like, that's, you know, should we have invaded in 2003 was like a question that people would like really want to debate with me before I went to Iraq in 2007. And, and I was like, like, that was a moot point when I, when I signed the contract, you know? Like, that happened in 2003. So it's a historically worthwhile argument to have, um, but, and it's pretty clear at this point. But, um, you know, for me, it was, you know, what do we do now, right? Um, and one of the things that sometimes people would ask me what my parents thought of the war, and they have political opinions and strong ones, and you'd get a different take, I think, if you asked my mom or my dad. But, like, you know, if you asked my dad about the war in 2005 when I was joining up, I had an older brother in the Marine Corps already. Um, my younger brother uh, was 
in junior ROTC at the time. He's in the Army now. And, you know, my father, he had his opinions about the sort of broad questions, but his, you know, his big gripe was, why is Donald Rumsfeld still the Secretary of Defense? He's incompetent. It's very obvious that he's incompetent. Um, and yet, there he is. I, you know, uh, and one of, you know, my, like, things that I found very frustrating is so the debate often happens on such an abstract level that we're no longer even talking about policy. Um, I, I mean, Donald Rumsfeld had a book of leadership tips that he wrote out and then was interviewed on Meet the Press and the Today Show with these jovial interviews. I mean, I know he's a, he's a good interviewee, but his arrogance and narcissism got Marines killed and made us less safe. Um, and that matters if you, if, if you actually care about the lives of troops and, and about what we're doing and the lives of Iraqis for that matter. And so, um, you know, I remember it was, uh, CPAC gave him a Defender of the Constitution Award in 2012. And it's, it's the same group of people doing that are the ones who are arguing that the surge was a success and then Obama screwed it up. Plenty of things to, I'm not going to get into a whole policy discussion, and certainly the left is just as guilty of these kind of crimes, but you asked about Rumsfeld, so. Um, you can like the surge in counterinsurgency and those sort of things and think that that was awesome. Or you can like Rumsfeld and think he's awesome. But you can't like them both at the same time unless you don't care about policy at all and you just care about whose team you're on. And if you care, and that, that's all you care about, you don't care about the lives of soldiers. No matter how much patriotic smoke you try and blow up people's asses. Um, so, and, you know, I feel like I should bash somebody on the left just to be Yes, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> Early on, you said that everybody has a role in war. Uh, certainly that was true in World War II and the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. where everybody was involved in one way or another. Can you describe what you think the role was of the American people during the Iraq War? Depends on what point in the war, right? So in, in 2003, it was you know, mid-70s approval ratings. Um, uh, I saw a poll um, recently that uh, said, I think 51% of people say they opposed the war in 2003. So I think now the role of the American people is pretending that it was all Bush's fault. Um, no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's serious, serious engagement with war policy and holding people accountable. Um, that's our role. And, and you know, I don't, I don't think I'm smart enough to know every policy decision that should be made. Um, certainly not. Um, but I do know, I do feel very strongly that if we're, if we're engaged with, with what we're doing as a country, we're going to have a much better chance of actually having uh, a military po policy with coherent strategic ends. And the other, you know, the other piece of that is how we interact with the veterans in our communities, right? We're, we're in the midst of the largest reintegration of, um, of veterans back in the civilian life since Vietnam. How do, you, how do you deal with and treat the veterans in your communities? What are our responsibilities toward them? That's also part of our civic engagement.
at one point in my life, I worked on veterans policy in Congress. I also participated in some uh, community service actions to show respect to veterans, to say how important what they were doing was and how much the American people cared. Reading your book, it made me feel like that civilians have a lot of respect for veterans, but the way they express it must seem ridiculous in a lot of veterans' eyes. So I guess my question is, how, how should we express our respect for what they do? And I, I don't know, I feel like everything I've done up until now must have seemed silly in their eyes, so. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I think it's, it's really about intent, right? And whether you're treating that person as a human being. Um, you know, there's, there's an article in the Times about some veterans' frustrations with the phrase, thank you for your service, right? Um, pers- you know, personally, I've always been, I, I, think it's not, I think it's a nice thing, right? Like, it's, it's certainly far better than a lot of people got after Vietnam. Um, I think the fear is that, um, that that's where it ends, that it doesn't go forward, right? That, that, that you know, it's an all-volunteer professional military, right? You have a lot of people who were very serious about the job they were doing. The end state mattered to them a lot and still does. And, you know, I don't want to be told, hey, thank you for what you did over there defending our freedom or whatever. I want, I don't want to be patronized. I want somebody to be engaged with the question. Um, and so if it's thank you for your service or whatever way of reaching out to somebody and then that's where it stops, then I think that's what's, what's frustrating is the indifference uh, of American society to the wars, the perceived indifference. If, on the other hand, there's thank you for your service or whatever phrase that starts the conversation, right, um, that is followed by an openness to the particulars of that individual and doesn't seek to, to protect a particular type of cultural or political understanding of what that war must mean on that person, then, then you're good. And that's true for any war, by the way. I, um, I, I interviewed a, a veteran of World War II who hates the notion of the greatest generation. I asked him, I was like, sort of, so what do you think? He was like, it's, I, I'm not supposed to curse, right? <laughs> he used a word that I'm not going to use to describe that trope. And he, so, he said, war ruined my life. I couldn't be with people. I was a loner after the war. It took me years to see that the world wasn't just an ugly place. And that was his war, the good war. The, the, the individual experience of war is, is always going to be individual. It's never going to perfectly match up with the generalized understanding of what, you know, of what particular narrative we've placed on the war, you know, the one movie that defines the war for us, and then we don't have to think about it again. right? And so I, I, there's always going to be awkwardness between two people uh, with different experiences, right? From different places, different, you know, uh, backgrounds, race, gender, what, like, but you have a conversation and you learn as part of a process, right? And the question is whether you're interested in that or whether, you know, whether it stops there. Do you want to say anything just briefly about the greatest generation since you've written a little bit about that? Um, I'm not, I don't want to bash. I'm not bashing the greatest generation. No, no. It's, it's, I think it has nothing to do with individuals and more to do with their... We, I think we do have a really 
a clear idea around people who served in World War II, a similarly clear but different idea about around people who served in Vietnam. I don't know if that same identity has has evolved for veterans of these conflicts, um, but uh, understanding the fallacy of some of those definitions is as important as honoring our veterans for their service. I think that's uh, I think that, that's just what I was wondering. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's World War II was a war that should have been fought. It was also a, a nasty, awful war with a lot of really dark chapters. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little dangerous when we indulge in too much myth-making. Um, and, and oftentimes it doesn't help. Uh, it doesn't serve the, the needs of the actual people who fought there. So wars have sort of a different character, kind of depending on when in the scheme of history they occur and what the political circumstances are. But Iraq and Afghanistan sort of grew out of the same set of circumstances, um, and they're so close in time. Do you think that, I mean, is it, you mentioned Elliot Ackerman's book. Uh, do you see emerging a sort of distinction in the kind of literature that's coming out of <clears throat> both those experiences? And 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, will we talk about, oh, that was a, that was a war about, that was a book about Afghanistan, and that's going to be different from a war, uh, from a book that is, is written about Iraq? I, it should be. I mean, one of the things that's complicated about it is that you've got the same group of people who are sometimes serving in, in both theaters, right? But yeah, they're different wars. Um, I, am, I get an email from a friend who's in Afghanistan. He's like, yeah, Afghanistan is not like Iraq. Shouldn't have taken going there to learn that. But um, I think the literature will be it's hard to actually predict what the literature is going to be. I think it's going to be really interesting. The thing that's exciting me about the, the novels that are coming out now is that there are all these things that I that are, that are, that are new to me and, and so powerful in trying to think our way through what through the past decade plus, right? So yeah, I think yes, there will be very distinctly different novels about. Afghanistan and Iraq, and there are already very distinctly different novels, even about the same wars, right? Um, you know, Iraq 2003 is not Iraq 2006, is not Iraq 2011. So, so if, if Kevin Powers had, if Kevin Powers had had served in in Afghanistan, would he have written a very different kind of book from The Yellowbirds? Maybe, but there's, there's Kevin's sensibility, and then there's the, the war in question that informs it, right? So, you know, uh, Anna Karenina and War and Peace have a lot in common, um, despite, you know, certain differences. It's, you know, it would, it would have been a different, very different war processed by a very different mind, um, making very different types of observations about you know, everybody's just writing about what it is to be a human being, right? You know, so Georges Bernanos writing about what it's like to be a, a country priest. Um, Shusaku Endo writing about what it's like to be a, a Japanese tourist in India, right? Like, radically different subject matter, but 
at the same time, you know, um, not so different. And and so, but yeah, I mean, it would have obviously would have been different, but I don't know h how different. And it still would have had Kevin's Kevin's eye. I'm going to bring it back to the book. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about how and why you came to the title of the book? Sure. Um, it's uh, so, I mean, redeployment's a word in the military. You know, when I came back from Iraq, I was being redeployed, right? Um, and it's the first story of the book, um, which sets up a lot of the concerns for me, which is, you know, it's not just war, but also what America is like when you get back. That's really important to me. That experience of redeployment and the place where you start to think about what, what the war's been, but also the notion of sort of in a punning way I'm deploying again because the thing about these wars is, is it's an all-volunteer military going time and time again. Um, it's one of the weird things about being a vet is you get out and the wars are still going on and your friends are still going over. And you're living like a civilian life that's totally disconnected from the fact that we're a country at war. And how do you wrap your head around that? Um, the book begins with a, a soldier or marine redeploying. It ends um, with a corpse returning home. And yeah, I don't know. There are there there are a lot of reasons that I picked it, but it 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 felt felt right. I just wanted to add one thing, which is in that in that first story, the sergeant is coming home, and he sees his wife, and she's holding a sign, and the sign says, "Welcome home. Here's your chore list: one, me; two, repeat number one." Um, so it opens in this very you know, funny, funny tone, and then, the, and then the last pages of the book are just heartbreaking. I wanted to ask you about a particular um, story in the sure. book, um, OIF, um, because it's written in, in this military sort of jargon. Um, were you concerned that um, it, it would, um, uh, your readers who aren't familiar with the military would be uh, confused by it because it's that occurred it, to me, or or was it an in, an intent? Uh, yes, it was very it was very intentional. And and actually, the the sort of confusion and alienation is important. I mean, I wanted that, and it, I should note that it's not just that um, civilians don't understand a lot of the acronyms in there. Vets don't understand a lot of the acronyms in there because you know there's 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 military culture is this big broad thing. But the, you know, the military is like a big, complicated organization, like with a lot of different jobs. I mean, they all have their own like particular vocabulary. To throw some more acronyms at you, I, I sat in on the um, op order for OIF 06 Tech 08, um, and it's, it was like a room full of lieutenant colonels and majors and master sergeants for all different shops and. And it was literally just like for hours them going down the thing, going like, does anybody know what this acronym means? Anybody? <laughs> Send it back to the shop, have them write it out. Does anybody know what this acronym means? Like, for two hours. Um, so <laughs> you've got your own little subcultures. And 
it was important to me to have that language in there. And I wanted just at the level of like somebody looking at the page and it just being dotted with all these acronyms, just, just the sight of it alone, just being like, okay, this is a different culture and that expresses itself at the level of the language. And I wanted to look at the rhythms of that language, the way that it can be used to obscure things, and also the ways that it can be used to be emotive, right? Because acronyms in the military take on uh, a meaning like if, if you say an IED to an Iraq or Afghan vet, that means something more emotive than improvised explosive device, right? Um, it's it's its own it's its own word now, and the way that that character uses the acronyms and the way that he um, the way the way that they shift for him over the course of story. It's only three pages. I figured you know I could make people suffer through. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sent it out to civilian readers while I was working on. I said, "Look, you know, I know you don't. I know you're not going to know this. Uh, most of the words here. Can you understand the gist of the story without looking anything up?" And it's, yes. a, it's a poem. It's like a prose poem. <laughs> um. And I didn't want people googling it. In 2002-3-4, I produced a radio series, um, documentaries called Experiencing War, and at that time, these were stories from vets starting with World War I to Korea, Vietnam, up to the first Persian Gulf War. And um, there were a surprising amount of accounts, although everybody's was different, about how uh, at the very end of it all, people fought for their buddies, not for their country. And I'm wondering if in the war since then, um, for a host of reasons with different kinds of um, injuries, different kinds of technology, um, different kinds of communications where people can FaceTime with their families and other friends, whether that nature of um, buddiness is still as strong in veterans' minds as it was before. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, actually, Elliot Ackerman talks about this. He's, you know, he's talking about Elliot served in uh, five tours and he was in the CIA, and he served in the Second Battle of Fallujah. And he, you know, he talks about seeing people rush out into, you know, under gunfire, and, and Elliot himself is a Silver Star recipient. But he was saying, you know, what's, you know, what w watching people do incredibly heroic things, his men doing incredibly heroic things, and thinking, what would make somebody do that? Um, he said, you know, like, courage is not an emotion. Like, you never feel brave, right? So what, you know, what is, what is the opposite of fear? It's love. It's love for, for people. And so as a leader, your job is to, um, you know, train a group of men to love each other. And you actually end up falling in love with your men. And then, of course, and then you take them and you destroy the thing that you love. You put them in a situation where they can get hurt and shoot up and, and, and sometimes killed. Um, and, you know, that's the tension, one of the tensions that he felt as an officer. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's always, it's very strong. People fight, they do heroic things, they fight in the moment for the people they love, but they make decisions that put them in that place, right? There are the kind of split-second decisions in a highly charged environment that you make, and then there are the the decisions that you make pr prior to that. So, you know, I I, I knew a, a marine who's had a, 
uh, one of his close friends had died saving his life. And um, he, he chose to redeploy after having had that experience. After having you know, had that experience and experience in the way that, that kind of shreds the, the juvenile notions of glory and warfare that, that everybody kind of comes into the military with. And his choice to go over was a very deliberative one. And it's related to his feelings for fellow Marines, it's related to his patriotism for country. All those things do come into play. Um, it's not that the broader cause is without meaning, but in the moment, what is overriding, I think, is oftentimes the, the strength of the unit and people, feeling that people have for one another. Will you say what you said earlier, the Johnson quote? Every man thinks meanly of himself for not having been a soldier. Every man thinks meanly of himself for not having been a soldier. And then you went on to say... Well, and, and also I think, but I think that, that it doesn't stop once you become a soldier, right? If you're a pogue, you know, um, you know there are people who've been through more, suffered through more. Once people experience combat, it's not like that fills anything necessarily. Um, there's always somebody who's done something harder. There's always somebody who's died for their country. So it's not, it's not a, um, it's not necessarily something that can be filled. I'm with an organization called Code of Support Foundation, and we work uh, to connect veterans to the services they need. And so I'm wondering, as you talk to all the different individuals that you interviewed, um, and you said that all of them had very different experiences, how did you see their different experiences impacting them as they transitioned and attempted to, if you will, normalize into the civilian world um, and the experiences and challenges they had, um, whether they be different or similar? I mean, it's hard to say because there's a lot of different experiences. I think it's, it's, a, it's a strange adjustment. It's, a strange, it's probably a strange adjustment leaving the military even if you didn't go to war just because it's such a different community with a different value system, right? You know, everybody is either on board in terms of what you're supposed to be as a Marine, or they're the guy who's like, screw the Marine Corps. But that's like a, that's like a hallowed tradition of kind of Marine, you know, uh, who's defining himself against the culture. And then like you go out into the civilian world, and it's like, like every, I don't know what, what this even is. And how do you find a you know a new, a new kind of sense of purpose, right? Um, and people answer that in different ways. I think we have to end there. One more question, Emily. This is a quick one. I just wanted to go back to the um, imaginary line of Marines waiting to kick your ass. Yes. Um, did they like what? Was your reception been from people you served with or veterans and or? Obviously not in general, you've probably gotten a lot of different reactions, but have you had any surprising reactions or disappointing ones? Or uh, no, no one has kicked my ass. Um, they couldn't, yet. he's a Marine. I, I'm a runner, so you know. Uh, it's, been, it's actually been great. Um, for the most part, it's been very positive. Um, not everybody. Um, and it's strange, um, you know, you get responses that you never expected. You get people, you get people coming out from other generations, uh, talking about their experiences or 
you know, what was similar or what was different uh, from things that I wrote about in the book. Um, you know, I, one friend, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the Samuel Johnson quote, uh, a friend who's seen a lot of combat, right? Uh, and the story that, that he said spoke to him the most was the story that I wrote about an adjutant, you know? Um, you're not, so it's, it's been, it's been really actually gratifying, yeah, to see what, to, to, not just to see what people, what resonated with people, but also to actually start talking with people about the war and, and getting a, takes on, on, on what I've written, or, or even just stories that are only loosely related to it that inform my own understanding of, of what I was trying to say in the first place or, or what I didn't say, but what remains to be said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. That was Phil Clay and Lee Carpenter recorded live in Washington on March 11, 2015 for the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. You can discover more about our programs at our website, aspeninstitute.org, including a conversation between Clay and fellow war veteran Timothy Donnelly, hosted by the Aspen Institute Arts Program in New York. Just search Phil Clay, that's K-L-A-Y, on our homepage. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also follow the Institute on Twitter at Aspen Institute and on Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.